I can't wait. I'm going to start while the choir is walking off. I'm ready. Good morning. Happy Easter. I'm Kenny, one of our elders. And uh, it's a good sign if at the end of sung worship, you're already breaking a sweat. If, when congregational singing is a cardiovascular uh, exercise, that is a good sign. I'm going to close all my circles, I realize, by the end of the third service on my little fitness app here. Okay. Wow. We are singing some powerful songs on Easter Sunday. We've only sung three. Um, But we're singing powerful claims of truth that if they are true, change everything. Maybe none more powerful than the opening claim in the first line of this hymn. I want us to think about this. We've been uh, using this hymn to frame our whole Passion Week, Palm Sunday, Good Friday, and this morning. So we've sung it at each of those services. Hopefully you're not getting tired of it, but getting more excited each time. But that opening line is an enormous claim. This is the claim of the Christian faith. Whoa, good catch. Um, This is the claim of the gospel. It's a claim about hope. The first line, in Christ alone, my hope is found. Alone means putting all our eggs in one basket, pun intended. (laughs) On Easter, the best reason I can think of for Christians putting eggs in a basket is as a visual reminder that that's what it comes down to. Paul says if this didn't happen, if Jesus didn't really die and really stop breathing and his heart stopped beating, and if he really wasn't dead in the grave and God raised him to life, then we're fools, We are putting all of our hope in this basket that Christ is risen. What hope are we talking about here? Well, the first verse unpacks some of this great hope. Here's the claims of this Christian hope that's found in Christ alone. This hope can produce light even when our life feels dark, uncertain, and blind. We can say, he is my light. He is my strength when life feels weak, vulnerable, and frail. This hope claims that we can have a song or joy even when life is painful. Next line says that we can have an experience in life as if we are on solid ground, even if life actually looks like fiercest drought and storm. This hope can produce a confidence and a, a, uh, and a constancy, a, like a groundedness. And when loss and death finally come, and they will, guaranteed, this hope offers comfort. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ, I stand. This hope is huge. If you don't believe that the hope that's found in Christ alone can produce all of that, I want to invite you to come back for a few Sundays. And get to know some of the people here at Grace. Introduce yourself. Get to know some families and people here at Grace. I see fruit of this hope in Christ all the time. All the time in the lives of you. That it really does produce light and strength and song and comfort even when life is very painful and scary. Stick around, not just to hear what's taught, but to then see the evidence of that faith borne out in the lives of his people. We're not perfect. We're clinging to our one true hope, but that clinging to that hope gives evidence of our hope that's found in Christ alone. 
And this hope has a name, notice. It's Jesus. It's not an abstract hope. Jesus, he is my light. He is my strength. He is my song. He's my comforter. Here in the love of Christ, I stand. In other words, this hope is that as long as Christ loves me and won't stop, I can stand. This hope in Christ alone is a hope that, number one, the grave isn't the end. It's a hope that death isn't final. Death feels pretty final when you're standing at a graveside ceremony and you watch a casket being lowered down. It doesn't get more final feeling than that. But the hope that's in Christ alone is a hope that that's not the end. Hope in Christ is a hope that suffering has an expiration date. That suffering that can feel pointless and endless isn't. And that there will come a day, future, when all suffering will be so far in the rearview mirror and the glory that is God has revealed will be so huge that it will eclipse. All suffering will seem like light momentary affliction, the Apostle Paul said. The Christian hope is one that injustice won't go unanswered forever. We need that hope, don't we? Week after week. We're aware more than we ever have because of social media. Every minute by minute, we're aware of the evil in this world and things that make us say, I hope that's going to go answered for. I hope that's not going to get a permanent pass. And the hope that's found in Christ alone is also a hope that injustice won't go on forever, but there is a judge who will call every last evil deed to account. And it's all found in Jesus Christ alone. And this morning, my one goal is I want to introduce you or reintroduce you to Jesus. I know, based on the noise level in this room, not just from the stage, but from all of you singing right now, that many of you agree that this is your hope, that you absolutely agree with these enormous claims that are found in Christ alone. And hopefully for you in this message from Acts 2, your faith will be reassured and your joy will just be increased. But for some of you here, I think you might not know this Jesus. The Jesus that you understand might not be the true Jesus. And either one of two things might be true. Either you're believing in Jesus, but the Jesus you believe in isn't really Jesus. He's something less than. Or maybe you've rejected Jesus, but the Jesus that you've rejected isn't the real Jesus. See, some distortion co combined of our culture and bumper stickers and slogans on social media that you've adopted. And I want to confront you with the real Jesus from the pages of Scripture. And I want to do it with the words of Peter. Turn to Acts chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, be bold. Look at someone next to you flipping pages and say, can I look on with you? And if someone asks you, be nice. Hold up your Bible. Even let them read it. Acts, the book of Acts, is part two of a two-volume work. Luke, a Christian, compiled an accurate account. Book one, the Gospel of Luke, all that Jesus began to do and teach while he was alive on earth, culminating in his death on the cross, his resurrection from the grave, and his ascension into heaven. That's where Luke's Gospel ends. Acts is part two. It's the story of all that Jesus continued to do and to teach through then his disciples and the church that began to be birthed from those 12 uh, and growing. 
And at the end of God, the Luke's gospel, after Jesus was raised and was about to ascend to the Father, Jesus said to his disciples, you're witnesses of these things. Behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. So here in Acts 2, here's the setting. They're waiting. This hasn't happened yet. This promise of the Father has not appeared. This power from on high, whatever that's going to look like, they're praying and they're waiting. Lord, we're ready. And all of a sudden, one morning it happens, something supernatural. The place where they're meeting shakes. There's this visual manifestation of God's glory in a way that they can describe as tongues of fire over the heads of these 12 apostles. They're trying to make sense of this and these apostles begin speaking in languages that they didn't grow up speaking. Clearly God miraculously allows them to be preaching in languages that they haven't preached and a crowd gathers. It must have spilled outside where they're gathering, I imagine. And Jews who are around who speak these different languages because they're not originally from Jerusalem hear and gather And first they think, these guys must be drunk. And Peter says, no, we're not drunk. It's too early in the day for that. It's actually a work of God here. And Peter gets up and he preaches a message to this crowd about Jesus. Six things he wants them to know about this Jesus. Let's read his message. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. And therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. You will not abandon my soul to Hades, that's the grave, or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Then Peter says to the crowd, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath that he would one day set one of his descendants on his throne he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. We're not drunk. God is pouring out his spirit right now. Verse 34, David didn't ascend into the heavens. He himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. 
Let me pray. Lord, please don't let a single person leave this room having not seen your glory in the face of Christ, that this man, Jesus, is more than a man. And what he's done changes everything and is the ground of such enormous hopes that we just sang about earlier, that it's all true and it's worth leaving everything for. Please, Lord. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear this message in Jesus' name. Amen. So the six things that Peter outlined about who Jesus is, those are my points. Six truths about Jesus that our hope hangs on. And the first one sounds pretty ordinary. Number one, this Jesus is a man. Look at verse 30, or 22 again, how he begins. Rather ordinary. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man. Jesus of a small little town that people said, you know what, N- nothing of much good can come out of Nazareth. This Jesus was fully human. He had a hometown. He had neighbors who he passed by day in and day out before he left town to go about his ministry. In every way, made like we are, conceived in Mary's womb, developed for nine months, was given birth to by Mary and nursed and bathed and fed and rocked as a baby. And he grew up and he went through all the stages, I imagine, that every one of you have as a child. The losing teeth stage. Jesus had a gap tooth smile stage. It's crazy to think about Jesus and all these stages. I assume he's a boy. He went through that hundred questions a day stage. Mary asking all these questions. He probably had a lot of questions. He went through puberty. He grew up. He became a man. His voice dropped. As a man... He was, like every man, he was tempted as we are, yet yet knew no sin. But he got hungry and tired. He could get sick, obviously. His his mother and brothers come to him at one point when he's wearing himself out with ministry, and they say, you're going to kill yourself. He probably was showing signs of fatigue and, and, and duress. He was a man. He bled blood, and he died and stop breathing. He was human. Why is this important? Why does our hope hang on this in part? It's because of this. If our hope is that death is in the end, then we need to understand our death problem is ultimately a sin problem. Death exists because sin is in us. The Bible's explanation for the universal reality of sin is that it wasn't God's intention in the first place, that the world as we find it, that it seems to be everything wears out, everything breaks down, everything decays, including us. We have a small window of time where we seem to start looking better and then it all goes the other way and then we all die. The reason for this, it wasn't God's original intent. He created this world to go on forever and us in his image to live with him forever perfectly provided for us an earth that he said was very good. And he gave us this command. He says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. I want you to to multiply and enjoy everything I've given and enjoy me as the giver of it. And he gave a boundary. This one tree, he said, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he puts puts this tree in the garden and draws a line and says, I want you to understand something, Adam and Eve. As long as you trust me and my goodness and my provision, it will always be good. But in the day that you eat of it and you doubt what I'm saying right now and you step over this boundary, you will die. But the thought entered their mind. They were tempted to think God can't be trusted 
there must be something God has over there for us if we eat that he doesn't want us to have. He's holding out on us. God's stingy. God's withholding. God's untrustworthy. They began to think if we ate of that tree, maybe we'd be like God. And instead of rather being happy with the thought of living in God's world under him as king, the thought was, well, maybe we can be like God. And this simple step of eating fruit was this massive offense to God of saying, I want to be God. The Bible says in the day that Adam and Eve ate of that fruit, sin entered in. And because of that, listen to this from Romans 5, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Our death problem is ultimately a sin problem. So if we're going to have hope that death isn't the end, then our sin needs to be settled. One person, one, someone's got to make it, give an account for our sin. There was one lesson that God was teaching Israel for generations before Jesus came in this sacrificial system that he set up. Every time they brought an animal and that animal's blood was shed on behalf of their sin, he was teaching something. Sin requires blood. Sin requires death. That's always been the consequence for sin, and it still is. But the fact that they kept going on and on was saying, this isn't the permanent solution. Animals can't die in your place. Man has to die for man. That's why Jesus must be man. Hebrews 2.17 says Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might taste death for everyone. And that's what Eric so powerfully preached in here on Friday night. Jesus took away our curse that was over our heads by becoming a curse and hanging on the cross in our place. But I get ahead of myself. So Jesus, Peter says, is a man. But secondly, he's not just a man. Look at how verse 22 continues. He's no mere man. He's a man who was attested by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Attested means endorsed by God. God did things through Jesus that showed and guaranteed who he really was. And not just a few, thousands of signs and wonders and works. Listen to just one summary from Mark's gospel. Wherever Jesus came, in villages, cities, countryside, they laid the sick in marketplaces and they implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. As many as touched it. He went from city to city, town to town, all over. Thousands of miracles attested to who he was. And not just healings of fever uh, and, par and paralysis and deformity and blindness and deafness and demon possession, but other signs and wonders. He fed thousands on at least two occasions from nothing. He calmed a storm with his words. He walked on water. He raised at least three people from the dead that were told of in the Gospels. And all along, Jesus teaching and was saying things that no one missed what he was saying. He talks like God. People said, who is it that talks with authority like this? The religious leaders got all rankled up because they kept saying, that's blasphemy for him to say things like that. And Jesus kept saying, look at my works. If you don't believe what I say about myself, my works cash the checks my mouth is writing. That's my paraphrase. 
So a paralyzed man is carried on a stretcher by four of his friends and lowered in through a hole in the roof so that Jesus might touch him and heal him. And Jesus says, your your sins are forgiven. And the religious leaders in the room think blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. And he knows what they're thinking. And he says, oh, you don't believe I can forgive sins? All right, sir, would you mind taking your stretcher and walking out? And he does. The works attest to his identity. He is not just a man. This is God who's become a man. Jesus has the very authority of God. God has arrived to do something about our sin problem and our death problem. Number three, this Jesus, this man who was more than a man, was crucified and killed, verse 23. Read. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you killed and crucified by the hands of lawless men. Not just killed, executed as as an heinous criminal. Executed in a way that was so extreme that Roman citizens wouldn't be subjected to it. Executed in a way to be made an example of, as Jackson pointed out last Sunday. Executed in a public shameful way to scare anyone else from ever doing anything like what that guy is hanging there for. And in shame, he hung and publicly bled and suffocated to death at the hands of evil men. And this is the one, when he was baptized, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Why on earth would God allow his beloved son in whom he's well pleased to endure that? Peter said it. This Jesus was delivered up. Given over according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. On Friday, Good Friday, Joyce Weaver beautifully read for us from, to us from Isaiah 53. God had predicted long ago through Isaiah that one day this, this Savior, this Messiah, would be a suffering Savior. And he would be mocked and tortured and beaten and killed in our place. And by his wounds we would be healed. And then as Isaiah says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, God, has put him to grief. This is the Father's plan to make peace with us by making his son the object of his wrath. Unless we feel sorry for Jesus, Jesus was in on the plan. He laid his life down and gave it as a ransom for many. Do you see the grace of God in this? Is this the Jesus that you've always understood? Who didn't come pointing his finger and coming as a judge first, but came to lay his life down as the, sacrifice, the very sacrifice for sin that he demands so that you never have to? This gift of love and righteousness scorned by the very ones he came to save and on the cross was crucified and the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin on him was laid so that here in the death of Christ, we can live. That's what this Jesus has done. And he was buried and in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. I love that Jesse left us on Good Friday not getting to sing the rest of that song. We so wanted to sing it. But we've sat for a couple of days thinking about the light of the world snuffed out, lying dead in a grave. And then as beautifully displayed behind me by Allie Howell and all of her helpers yesterday, bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. Isn't this just stunning? 
If you're, if you're sitting in the back and not the front, you can't see. There's these reflections of shattered glass all over the ceiling. I mean, this bursting out of the grave. Number four, this Jesus was raised from the dead by God. Listen, verse 24. God raised him from the dead or raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. I love that last phrase. It was not possible for Jesus to be held by it. I noticed this morning, we sang that same point in two different ways. Death in vain forbids him rise. Hallelujah. Picture is death saying, no, 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 no. And he just blows right past. Or death cannot keep its prey. Oh, I love that. Jesus, whoosh, out from the grave he arose. Putting Jesus in a grave Peter's saying, I think, is like putting Mentos in a two-liter bottle of Diet Coke. <laughs> Hopefully, you've all seen those YouTube videos. You drop Mentos down in Diet Coke. I don't know what's going on in there. But the reason that Jesus putting in a grave is like that is, one, he doesn't belong in there in the first place. Secondly, he's not staying in for long. <laughs> Hopefully, I just redeemed YouTube videos of Mentos and Diet Coke for you. The next time you see a video, you'll think, now bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave, he rose again. Death can't keep him in. Let's go with Peter's analogy. He didn't know about Mentos and Diet Coke. He said, loosing the pangs of death, the labor pains of death, the pains that hit, and when they hit, I've never given birth, obviously. But when those pains start, the mother knows this baby is not staying in. And Peter says, who's going through labor pains? Death. Death felt labor pains while Jesus was in the grave. That's cool. In the same way that a woman cannot hold that baby in forever, death couldn't hold Jesus in forever. Je Jesus, as you might know from the Gospels, was buried in a tomb that wasn't his. Joseph of Arimathea, a, a wealthy man, offered up his own tomb that had never been used for Jesus to be buried in. And yesterday I read the greatest Holy Saturday tweet I've ever read. This is Pastor T.J. Timms from Emmanuel Nashville. He said, Jesus, the only man in history to borrow a tomb for the weekend. <laughs> it's like Airbnb, man. I only need it for two nights. <clears throat> because it was not possible for him to be held by it. I love that. Why not? Because death had no authority over Jesus. That's why he quotes Psalm 16. David, he's saying, David, people, is buried. We could go visit his tomb right now. So when he says, you'll not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption, he must not have been talking about himself, but the promised Christ who would go to the grave but wouldn't stay there. And it didn't have authority over Jesus because Jesus never sinned. Sin, death spread to us because we have sinned. We are all in sin. Death didn't spread to Jesus. It had no claim over him. That's why Jesus is the only man who ever lived who could say, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to take it or lay it down and I have the authority to take it up. In verse 32, Peter reiterates, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, all of them. He says again, you all witnessed. Gospels say that over 500 people saw Jesus walking around in Jerusalem and teaching again for 40 days after he was raised. And no one in the crowd again says, hold on, that didn't happen. I think the implication is no one could deny 
Jesus sightings after he was buried. And because of all this, number five, it's getting serious now in his sermon, verse 36, this Jesus is both Lord and Christ. This Jesus who was mocked and taunted with a sign, the King of Kings. Oh, if you really do command angels, why aren't they coming to your rescue now? Listen to what Peter says, verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Lord whom you crucified. Lord, sovereign ruler, the one who one day all his enemies will be his footstool. That's Jesus, the one they crucified. Christ, the anointed king, that's Jesus, the one they crucified. My favorite songwriter, Andrew Peterson, finally released an album the other day that I've been waiting for years for. It's called Resurrection Letters, Volume 1. Go listen to it today. Download it, pay for it, or listen to it on Spotify, but pay for it. It's worth it. I've only gotten to listen to it a couple times so far, but so far, the sta- one of the standout lines to me is in this opening song called um, His Heart Beats. Look at this, verse 2. He breathes in. His living lungs expand. The heavy air surrounding death turns to breath again. He breathes out. He's word and flesh once more. The Lamb of God slain for us is a lion ready to roar. All you C.S. Lewis nerds are geeking out right now, right? It's obviously a reference to Aslan, the Christ figure in the Chronicles of Narnia, who also was resurrected after being put to death in the place of another for their sin. And in, the, in, in that book, as Aslan comes to full strength, he says to Lucy and Susan, and now to business, I feel I am going to roar. You'd better put your fingers in your ears. Can you imagine this crowd hanging on Peter's words as he says, God sent his Messiah to you and you crucified him? What is the lion about to roar? Verse 37 says, They were terrified. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said, Brothers, what shall we do? Next verse. Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. The roar of the risen Lion of Judah is a roar of grace and mercy. That is the unexpected upside-downness of the gospel that God would send his only son and we could treat him like that and he could come out of the grave and rather than get vengeance, he could offer a gift of grace to be received by faith. Don't get me wrong. One day, the Bible says, Jesus is going to return as the lamb who was slain and the lion of Judah and he will be judge. And it says in that day, every last enemy in terror, will wish that the mountains would fall on them to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. So it's not that Jesus is not holy and angry about sin and going to right evil one day, but this day here in Acts 2 and today, April 1st, 2018, 
It's a roar of grace that Jesus wants you to respond to. That's the sixth thing about Jesus that our hope hangs on. He forgives. That's his roar. Repent and be baptized. One church I saw this last week in their online invitation to come to Good Friday uh, and Easter Sunday said this, bring your very worst sin. Jesus will bring his very best grace. I love that. Because if killing the Lord of glory is a forgivable sin, what do you got? What are you, what's, what's the record on, on your plate right now, on your heart, that makes you feel that God is unapproachable? Bring it to Jesus. He paid for it. How does this hope become your hope? Jesus says, receive me. Peter's words are this. He says it this way. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. In other words, admit your sin sickness, admit your brokenness and your failure, turn from it, that's repent, and believe in me, the one who died in your place. Be baptized in my name. Identify yourself now with me who died for you and rose so that you might one day rise again. And this hope can be your hope. And just as surely as it is impossible for Christ to be held by death, it can be impossible for you to be held by death. That line, death cannot hold its prey, could apply to you. As he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. For I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. If you're not taking notes, write this one sentence down and think about this later. Let me say it twice. Has three parts. Death has lost its grip on me because it never had a grip on Jesus and now he has a grip on me. That's how salvation in Jesus' name works. Death loses its grip on you because it never had a grip on Jesus and now he has a grip on you. He's got a good grip. When Jesus broke out of the grave, he blew the door off its hinges so that it had an exit door and that one day, even if we all go to the grave before Jesus returns, one day we will walk out of that grave. We'll be raised to walk in new life forever with Jesus. Amen? Jesus said, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asks, do you believe this? To Mary. So I want to ask you, do you believe this? That this Jesus who was a man, but not just any man, God, become man, died for you, rose from the grave, and actually graciously offers you forgiveness and eternal life with him in his name. If you believe this, I beg you this morning to pray, even right now, and say, I believe. Forgive my sins, God, in Jesus' name. Help me now walk in new life. Raise me up. Take a moment. I want you to be quiet and pray. If that's you, if that describes you, you walked in these doors this morning, not sure about Jesus and what all this is about, but right now, the Lord is calling you. You feel a conviction of your sin a sense of need for forgiveness and a fear of the grave and a longing to actually know this Jesus who loved you like this. Pray. Ask him to become your savior and offer your life to him. If you've already done that, take a minute and in your heart give thanks. Give thanks for even the sins of this week that have been covered and bought with the precious blood of Christ.
Jesus, in Christ alone, our hope is found. You are our light, our strength, our song. You are our cornerstone, our solid ground. You are firm through the fiercest drought and storm so we can hold firm. You are our comforter. Lord, be a comforter to us this morning. Lord, this morning, Easter could be raising for many of us in this room mixed feelings, sadness over the grave, but great hope in the resurrection from the grave. Lord, I pray you'd be a comforter this morning and our all in all and that we would walk out these doors standing in the power of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Choir, why don't you come on up? We are going to finish with one beautiful song, and it's a perfect segue into the next four weeks. So I want to make sure you know what you're invited back for. The next four Sundays, we are going to consider four things that are true because Jesus lives. First of all, is that we can be born again, that resurrection life doesn't have to wait until we're brought out of the grave one day, but it begins in our lives now as God makes us new. Week two, because he lives, we can have full assurance, justified that we're righteous in God's sight. How about that? Week three, because he lives, we have a hope that one day we will have eternal, imperishable bodies with God forever in the flesh, with all those who we lost who have been in Christ, um, to know him forever. And finally, week four, because he lives, church, we can be confident that whatever sacrifice he calls us to for the sake of his name will be worth it. Our labor's not in vain. That sounds like worth coming back to, right? Who are you going to invite to that? Would you begin praying? Who needs to hear those messages? And would you bring them back next week? With that, let's close. Let's sing.